Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a 24-month-old girl with increased seizure frequency. Here's the case presented by Dr. Rahul. A 24-month-old girl presents to the emergency department with a history of shaking, jerking episodes in her sleep. The patient was in the care of her aunt when this acute episode occurred. When the father arrived from work, he saw his daughter having episodes of body shaking, alternating with heavy breathing. The patient would not wake up in between episodes. There was pertinently no history of trauma. 911 was called, and when EMS arrived, she was starting to arouse and respond to stimuli. Patient was transported to the emergency department. In the ambulance, the patient continued to have similar shaking and jerking episodes and was given rectal diazepam prior to IV access being taken. On arrival to the emergency department, the patient had a fever of 38.5 centigrade. Due to ongoing seizures, the patient was loaded with phosphenitoin after two total doses of IV lorazepam. Patient was subsequently intubated for airway protection as well as respiratory failure. A respiratory viral panel was negative for SARS-CoV-2, but positive for rhinoenterovirus. The patient was admitted to the pediatric ICU with continuous EEG monitoring and placed on mechanical ventilation with fentanyl and dexmedetomidine infusions. The patient also received as-needed or PRN midazolam administrations. Her physical exam on arrival to the PICU was unremarkable. She wasn't interactive as she had just received sedation after intubation. On her neuro exam, her pupils were equal, face was symmetric, tongue was midline, and she had normal tone in her extremities. There were no spontaneous movements noted, and there was no withdrawal to painful stimuli. Deep tendon reflexes were equal throughout, and there were no upper motor neuron signs such as clonus noted. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, this patient has fever, viral infection with rhinoenterovirus, generalized tonic-clonic seizure lasting more than five minutes, acute respiratory failure, all of which bring up a concern for status epilepticus. Absolutely, Pradeep. We will get to this later on in the episode. However, remember that status epilepticus is historically defined as single epileptic seizure of greater than 30 minutes of duration or a series of epileptic seizures during which function is not regained between ictal events in a 30-minute period. In this case, the patient continued to have seizures back to back to back. So let's go ahead and transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Pradeep, what are some key history features in this child who presents with status epilepticus? Rahul, this child has prolonged seizures, fever with viral symptomatology, which may act as a trigger. A pertinent negative is the patient has no history of trauma or comorbid conditions such as a genetic syndrome. The patient also has no presumed ingestions as well. Rahul, are there any red flag symptoms on physical exam uh, that you could highlight in this case? Absolutely. In this patient, the physical exam was relatively unremarkable. However, when you're assessing a patient 
with status epilepticus, it's really important to look for a rash. Things like darkening of the skin can point to a neurocutaneous syndrome, or it could point to adrenal leukodystrophy. Patients can also have meningococcemia, which can present as a petechial purpural rash. Patients can also have certain genetic facies or even evidence of trauma. In our case, all of those were absent. So to continue with our case, Pradeep, can you highlight what were the labs consistent with? Rahul, in this patient, a CBC was sent, which showed a white blood count of about 27K with the predominant neutrophils. Hemoglobin and platelets were normal. The patient's initial CMP was normal, except for a glucose of 233. Gas after intubation was 7.9 with a PCO2 of 49. Her ionized calcium was 4.9 and a urine analysis that was unremarkable. An initial head CT that was done in the ER was also negative. Okay, to summarize, so far we have a 24-month-old girl who presented with prolonged seizures and acute respiratory failure all of which bring up the concern for status epilepticus, the topic of our discussion today. Rahul, can we start with a short multiple-choice question? Absolutely. A 14-year-old girl is brought to the PICU from the floor with new-onset status epilepticus. She is post-op day two from a posterior spinal fusion surgery and is receiving IV fluids on the floor. Upon arrival to the PICU, her seizure is described as generalized tonic-clonic, And after initial stabilization and maintenance of her airway and hemodynamics, which of the following is most likely to reveal the cause of her seizures? A, serum electrolytes, B, stat MRI brain, C, lumbar puncture, or D, continuous EEG? Rahul, this is an excellent question. And the correct answer is A, serum electrolytes. Patients, especially after posterior spinal fusion surgery, are at risk for hyponatremia, secondary to SIDH, or even hypotonic fluids used for maintenance. Correction of hyponatremia in a child with seizures requires 3% hypertonic saline. The seizure threshold is typically a serum sodium of 125 milliequivalents per liter. Serum electrolytes will also reveal the serum glucose, which is especially important to check in infants who have seizures. A STAT MRI is not warranted in this case, especially if she's alert and awake prior to the seizure. Additionally, it would be dangerous to send an unstable patient to the MRI. As the patient is afebrile, a lumbar puncture is less likely to be illuminating about the cause of a seizure. Lumbar punctures could be needed, especially if there is a strong suspicion for infection, such as meningitis, but can be delayed if patient is unstable and antibiotics initiated right away while continuous EEG may be needed, especially if patient is intubated or comatose and there is a risk of non-clinical seizures, it is not the first-line diagnostic tool. Excellent explanation, Pradeep. It is of utmost importance to make sure you assess for electrolyte disturbances or glucose abnormalities in your rapid diagnostics when patients are seizing. Remember, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, and hypocalcemia can contribute to seizures. If you have a child with seizures and hypocalcemia, make sure that you keep DeGeorge syndrome or 22Q11 deletion in your differential. Pradeep, as we think about our case, what would be your differential for a child who presents with rhythmic jerking movements that mimic or are associated with seizures? Uh, First, I would consider movement disorders. Any abnormal involuntary movements such as sticks, tremors, 
chorea atidosis, dystonia, myoclonus, bellismus, asterixis, uh, can mimic seizures. Dyskinesia is a generalized term used for abnormal involuntary movements. The second differential would be a migraine. Its paroxysmal nature plus association with neurodeficits or altered consciousness may lead to confusion with seizures. In infants, paroxysmal non-epileptic disorders such as jitteriness, benign neonatal myoclonus may be confused with seizures. Myoclonus from drugs such as etomidate or post-drowning due to hypoxic reperfusion injury may be mistaken for seizures. Let's transition and highlight key definitions of status epilepticus. Previously, status epilepticus was defined as a seizure lasting greater than 30 minutes or recurrent seizures lasting greater than 30 minutes without patient regaining consciousness between seizures. The new definition refers to status epilepticus as five minutes or more of either continuous seizure or two or more discrete seizures between which there is an incomplete recovery of consciousness. A refractory status epilepticus is a patient who has status epilepticus that persists despite the administration of first and second line anti-seizure medications with different mechanisms of action. We will discuss these seizure medications later on in our podcast. Super refractory status epilepticus refers to status epilepticus that continues 24 hours or more after onset of anesthetic therapy for status epilepticus and includes recurrence during reduction or withdrawal of the anesthetic therapy, such as isoflurane. So Pradeep, let's go ahead and transition and talk a little epidemiology. What is the most common cause of seizures and status epilepticus in the pediatric population? So Rahul, majority of pediatric status epilepticus, almost 30 to 50%, basically involved febrile seizures. About 9 to 17% involve either acute metabolic derangement or a CNS infection. 12% of first seizures in children present with status epilepticus. So Rahul, what is the pathophysiology of seizures and its progression to status epilepticus? That's a great question. And I would frame this by thinking about the brain having excitatory and inhibitory signals. Status epilepticus, or a seizure in general, is essentially an imbalance between excitation and inhibition in the brain. In effective recruitment of GABA neurons, which are inhibitory, coupled with excessive excitatory NMDA neuronal stimulation leads to initiation and propagation of the electrical disturbances we see in status epilepticus. Prolonged seizures leads to selective neuronal loss in particular brain areas, namely the hippocampus, cortex, and thalamus. There is neurotoxicity due to excitotoxicity, and this is, again, due to excess NMDA activation along with AMPA receptor activation, which are both related to the ligand of glutamate. Patients may also have hypoxic ischemic injury with prolonged excitotoxicity. In hypoxic ischemic injury, there is an imbalance between increased metabolic demand and cerebral blood flow. Again, the demand and the supply do not match each other. Hypoxia, acidosis, hypotension, and hypercarbia adds to the ongoing damage. 
There are early and late time-related complications of status epilepticus, and these are nicely elucidated on LearnPICU.com under the heading of pathophysiology. We will link this in our show notes. The key take-home point, which I do want to bring home here, is the fact that the risk of subsequent epilepsy after status epilepticus is around 25 to 35%. And this was documented in a very early study in 1999 by Bernard and colleagues. Would you mind highlighting the way seizures are classified? Seizures are classified as partial or generalized based on clinical presentation or EEG findings. Partial seizures arise in specific areas of the brain and are further classified as simple, local, or focal. Generalized seizures arise from diffuse cortical areas at one time. They involve both cerebral hemispheres and consciousness is typically impaired. Generalized can present as motor movements or absence seizures during which no convulsions are seen. So Rahul, if you had to work up this patient with status epilepticus, what would be your diagnostic approach? Well, Pradeep, I would start with some basic labs such as glucose, serum electrolytes, including magnesium and calcium. I also typically add a DIC panel and CPK, especially for prolonged seizures. If there is concern for infection, then a CBC with differential, lumbar puncture, and inflammatory markers such as CRP and Procal are warranted. Patients should have appropriate cultures from the urine, the blood, and the CSF. You should also send viral studies such as HSV PCR from both the blood and the CSF, especially in neonates. And finally, in this day and age, we must send the respiratory viral panel, which in some institutions include the COVID PCR. Another thing to look at is the drug levels of previous anti-epileptic agents. This is especially important in your complex care population who may be on anti-epileptic therapy already and you are trying to assess the levels in their blood. In selected cases where inflammation is suspected, trending your ESR, CRP, and von Willebrand antigen may be required. Additionally, going down the route of looking for autoimmune conditions by assessing for oligoclonal banding is going to be very important. You should also evaluate for toxins, metabolic diseases, and even do an ophthalmologic exam especially if you're concerned about papilledema. In patients with established epilepsy, imaging is typically not necessary. However, you may want to get a quick head CT or a shunt series, especially if they have a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. Once these patients are transferred to the PICU, we can use continuous EEG monitoring. This is especially going to be important in those patients who are intubated or comatose as Another entity, non-clinical status epilepticus, can be on our differential. The overall incidence of electrographic seizures in critically ill patients is around 26%. A very recent study in 2020 devised a predictive model for capturing electrographic seizures in critically ill pediatric patients. The model actually had a sensitivity of 92% and a negative predictive value of 93%. Variables associated with increased capturing of seizures using this predictive model and algorithm included age, if you are less than one or greater than one year of age, acute 
encephalopathy, clinical seizures prior to continuous EEG initiation, an EEG background that showed slow, disorganized, discontinuous, or birth suppression background, and finally, epileptiform discharges during initial 30 minutes of recording. We should really be cognizant of the equipment for continuous EEG monitoring that you may have at your own institution. So to summarize our discussion thus far, let's go ahead and review some common causes of seizures in the pediatric ICU. AED withdrawal or changes, drug toxicity or withdrawal, electrolyte problems, seizures related to hypertension, which we have an episode entitled Press Syndrome, tumors, traumatic brain injury, vasculitides, renal or hepatic dysfunction that can lead to systemic changes and subsequent seizures, as well as patients who are going to have hypoxia or ischemia to the brain. All of these are causes of seizures in the pediatric ICU. Pre-existing epilepsy, genetic, and central nervous system disorders can also present with seizures. We, as intensivists, should be vigilant about non-convulsive status epilepticus, especially in children who have hypoxic injury after cardiac arrest, a submersion injury, traumatic brain injury, or those who are going to be sedated and paralyzed. To close out our episode, Pradeep, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to status epilepticus as our diagnosis, what would be your approach to management? Rahul, in the first five minutes, which uh, would be referred to as the initial phase of status epilepticus, I think the intensivists really need to focus on stabilization of the patient's airway, breathing, and hemodynamics. Establishing IV IO access and supplementing the patient's oxygenation and focusing on correcting any abnormal glucose electrolyte should be the priority in the initial first five minutes. Medications that we typically use include benzodiazepine, which are considered to be the first-line agents for status epilepticus. They work by potentiating the neuroinhibitory effects of uh, GABA. Lorazepam, diazepam, and midazolam are frequently used. One study published in the Journal of Child Neurology in 2016, a meta-analysis of about 16 RCTs, which had about 1,800 patients, compared the efficacy of midazolam, lorazepam, and diazepam in treating pediatric status epilepticus, uh, reported that non-IV midazolam and IV lorazepam was superior to IV or non-IV diazepam, and IV lorazepam was at least as effective as non-IV midazolam. The summary of these studies is that IV Ativan and IV midazolam, if your patient has good access, are equally as effective. Yes, Rahul, the uh, above-mentioned benzodiazepines in this study all are highly lipid-soluble and enter the brain within two minutes of IV administration. Diazepam has the highest lipid solubility and is also highly protein-bound and thus has a large volume of distribution of the unbound drug. Thus, the effective duration of action for diazepam in uh, status epilepticus is 20 to 30 minutes resulting in rapid redistribution compared to lorazepam, which has a much smaller volume of distribution of the unbound drug and thus has a longer duration of action in status epilepticus. Hence, lorazepam is the preferred agent in the initial management of status epilepticus. 
Midazolam can be given intranasally or intramuscularly in patients who has no IV access. In fact, one study uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012 showed that intramuscular midazolam was as effective and, and safe as IV lorazepam for pre-hospital seizure termination. Rectal diazepam can also be considered if the patient has no IV access. Rahul, how many doses of benzodiazepines would you give a patient uh, who has status epilepticus? Well, Pradeep, more than two doses of benzodiazepines is associated with side effects without substantial increase in efficacy. Remember, as you keep giving these agents, it is very important for you to pay attention to airway, breathing, and circulation. The potency of benzodiazepines decreases 20-fold over 30 minutes of status epilepticus. This is all due to receptor trafficking. Now, receptor trafficking of GABA-A receptors resulting in movement of the receptors from the synaptic membrane into the cytoplasm is going to be seen whenever you're going to be giving repeating doses of benzodiazepines. Hence, the receptor now becomes functionally inactive because it is not on the cell membrane. This reduces the number of GABA-A receptors available on the synaptic surface to bind the benzodiazepines, and in turn leads to single seizure becoming self-sustaining, a time-dependent resistance to benzodiazepine develops. Additionally, greater than two doses of benzodiazepines increases the risk of respiratory depression. This has been noted in some studies to be as high as 43%. Furthermore, only 13% of patients achieved seizure termination after a third dose of benzodiazepine. So the summary here is that if you have two doses of benzodiazepines, you're going to go to the second stage. So Pradeep, do you mind highlighting what are those second-line anti-epileptics if your patient is still seizing? Rahul, the recommended second-line agents include phenobarbital, phosphenitoin, levetiracetam, which is Keppra, and valproic acid. One randomized controlled trial by Kapoor and others of the PECAN investigators group, which was published in the New England Journal in 2019, reported that levetiracetam, which is Keppra, phosphenitoin, and valproic acid, each led to seizure cessation and improved alertness by 60 minutes in approximately half the patients. And the three drugs were associated with similar incidence of adverse events. Furthermore, a recent RCT published in Pediatrics 2021 by Sharp and others reported that phenobarbital was more effective than Keppra for the treatment of neonatal seizures, although use of phenobarbital at higher adverse events, though it was not statistically significant. The same study showed a higher dose of Keppra of approximately 40 to 60 milligram per kilo led to improved efficacy in 7.5% of the neonates. All the doses are mentioned in our show notes. Uh, for Keppra, the initial loading dose is 30 to 60 milligram per kilo. For phosphaniton IV, it is 20 milligram per kilo. For uh, valproic acid, it is 21 milligram per kilo. I would caution the use of valproic acid, especially in patients who have mitochondrial disease. And the dose of phenobarb is about 20 milligrams per kilo. Excellent summary, Pradeep. And thank you so much for adding the doses. 
Refractory status epilepticus is, again, a seizure that persists greater than 30 minutes or is refractory to benzodiazepines, which are the first-line therapies. This is actually seen in about 25% of pediatric patients. What we need to do is, after these patients are diagnosed with status epilepticus, we need to ensure continuous EEG monitoring, have the patient admitted to the PICU, and pay particular attention to airway breathing and hemodynamics. Mortality in refractory status epilepticus is anywhere between 16 to 43%. So Pradeep, what if you continue to have refractory seizures? What PICU-specific therapies would you like to highlight at this stage? Yeah, Rahul, besides additional boluses of second-line agents, such as phosphenitoin, phenobarbital, valproic acid, and Keppra, the use of medically-induced coma uh, using agents such as midazolam, barbiturates such as pentobarbital, or propofol, or ketamine should be highly considered. Uh, patient monitoring with continuous EG till seizures stop or burst suppression is achieved is required. Maintain burst suppression for at least 24 to 48 hours before gradually backing off on the infusion medications. If patients have seizures during weaning, uh, they are considered to be super refractory. Now, midazolam infusion at 1 to 5 microgram per kilo per minute IV after a 0.2 milligram per kilo load led to seizure suppression in 96% of the children within 65 minutes with minimal adverse events. If patients don't respond to midazolam, then use of pentobarbital 5 milligram per kilo load followed by maintenance at 1 to 3 milligram per kilo per hour may be necessary. Non-responders to pentobarbital had a mortality of 90%. Pentobarbital works via GABA receptors, but also additionally inhibits NMDA receptors and alters conduction in some ion channels. Now, ketamine can be considered in super-refractory patients. It works as a competitive inhibitor of the NMDA receptor and decreases glutamate-mediated neurotoxicity. Isoflurane can also be used in super-refractory status epilepticus as a last resort, and case series in pediatrics have shown that it can stop seizures in 100% of the patients. Isoflurane use is associated with high risk of relapse, and other medications must be considered for long-term seizure control. Refractory seizure states are really important to keep in your differential. One of them is NORSE, and the other is FIRES. Rahul, can you please tell us more about this? Absolutely, Pradeep. Just briefly, NORSE is an acronym that stands for New Onset Super Refractory Status Epilepticus. FIRES is an acronym that describes Febrile Infection-Related Epilepsy Syndrome. This is a subcategory of NORSE in which patients present with fever in the setting of status epilepticus. NORSE and FIRES may be triggered by inflammatory cascades. In FIRES, patients are usually going to be healthy school-age children, and they present with super refractory status epilepticus. As this is immune-mediated, you should consider immunotherapies in the form of high-dose steroids, IVIG, and plasmapheresis in your management framework. You should also make sure you consider differentials such as anti-NMDA encephalitis and consider the use of IL-1 receptor antagonists such as anakinra and IL-6 inhibitors such as tocilizumab. These can be useful, especially if your patient is diagnosed with fires 
or cryptogenic Norse. Rahul, what are some of the other non-pharmacologic therapies which can be considered in super-refractory status epilepticus or chronic epilepsy? Absolutely. In terms of dietary interventions, you will want to consult closely with your PICU nutritionist. Patients with refractory status epilepticus or chronic epilepsy may be placed on a ketogenic diet. You may also consult with your neurosurgeons to figure out a plan related to epilepsy surgery. Vagus nerve stimulation and electroconvulsive therapy can lead to cessation of seizures in refractory status epilepticus. Now, hypothermia has also been used, and adult trials showed slowing of EEG progression to status epilepticus in mechanically ventilated patients who were cooled to 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. However, there was no improvement in 90-day outcomes. And this was a study that was published in NEJM in 2016. This concludes our episode on status epilepticus. Rahul, can you summarize our key objective takeaways from today's podcast? We have two important takeaways. The longer the seizure continues, the more difficult they are to control with medications. Hence, early diagnosis and aggressive intervention early on are necessary. When it comes to the management of status epilepticus, the take-home point is have good, general, supportive PICU care, terminate status epilepticus with first-line and second-line therapies, and prevent recurrence and correct any precipitating causes as well. The second take-home point for today's episode is that the management of status epilepticus should include general, supportive PICU care and termination of status epilepticus early on. You want to prevent recurrence, and you want to also correct any precipitating causes. Finally, you want to prevent and treat the complications related to status epilepticus. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamat, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode and visit our show notes for our references. Thank you.